Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. How much do we know about other pandemics that have ravaged the world, the United States, and even Kentucky? Before COVID-19, what does history tell us about the spread of disease, the preparations necessary to thwart a virus that sweeps through a community, killing thousands? What have we learned from previous pandemics? Today, sheltering in place and keeping proper distance from friends, family, and the public at large, we turn to author and community health expert, Terry Foody. Terry, a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, is a certified clinical research coordinator, has worked in community health, taught at Kentucky State University, and is a consultant on healthy living. She's authored two books, The Cherokee and the Newsman, and The Pie Seller, The Drunk, and The Lady, Heroes of the 1833 Cholera Epidemic in Lexington, Kentucky. Terry, welcome. Hi, Bill. The 1833 cholera epidemic is something that uh, you looked into uh, long before uh, we knew that we were going to be dealing with a coronavirus and uh, now known as COVID-19. So give us a a little bit of background uh, about your history and your interest in, in that pandemic and that epidemic, if you will. And uh, that might be a good question, the difference in a, in a pandemic and, and epidemic. But just begin by, by talking a little bit about uh, how you uh, began to look at uh, public health in this way. Okay. My background is in public health nursing. I got my bachelor's in nursing at Niagara University outside Niagara Falls and my master's here at the University of Kentucky. And I've worked at the health departments in both states and in Niagara Falls too. So when I moved here a long time ago, I heard about the cholera epidemic and King Solomon, and that's all that I heard. But I was very curious to know whether or not nursing was involved, how much it affected the community, what the response was. So I started looking everywhere I could and spent years doing this. You know, you do it for a while and then life takes over and then you go back to it and pick up the pieces. And I had liked scavenger hunts as a kid. So it was a scavenger hunt for me. I used libraries several different places, but I also used the city records at the vault by the old jail downtown with Harold, Harold Barker helped me there and other sources putting it together. The old Julius Marks home on Georgetown, and there, there was still a nurse there. She told me quite a bit of the history. And then of course, Eastern State Hospital, which was the lunatic asylum and there were deaths there. So as I'm putting it together, I'm starting to see some patterns. It took me into the literature about cholera throughout the world and how the world responded to it. And it is so similar to what we've just been going through this year as far as the world's response because the cholera epidemics became pandemics in the 1800s. They were like the scourge of the world and they went through cycles. And these diseases are spread by trade, travel, war, religious pilgrimages. Once we start moving around, it's going to go. Just to jump right current, and then we'll get back to the cholera. Think about it. Okay, it starts in Wuhan in China. How did it get out? 
it didn't float in the air. It got out with people. You know, all those people, they were moving out of there for sending them back on the planes to their other countries. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> it's going to spread. Well, it did. And so cholera had been endemic in a certain area by the Ganges River. I don't know if I said that right. Bangladesh, India, old countries like that. The British invaded India. This is a theory. And their naval, Navy soldiers, naval people started dying from cholera. Now, it doesn't, it's not contagious a person to person, but it's infectious. If it gets into the drinking water, contaminated by sewer, then the, the person who gets it becomes a host. You have to drink contaminated water. You have to take it in. And when you don't have good sewer systems, that's when your drinking water gets contaminated by the vibrio cholera that's in the person's feces. So we are the host, just like it is with COVID. We are the host. This is how the, co- the contamination gets around. In your study um, and, and research uh, from uh, the cholera epidemic uh, in 1833 and even past history of other epidemics and pandemics in the world, all the way up to modern day, uh, we know that, uh, and you have written, and that cholera, uh, as you just explained, it was in the water supply. But with COVID, uh, what you've read and, and researched about uh, the coronavirus, we we know that it was. Um, they think that it was spread or began with with bats. Am I correct Animals. about that? Uh-huh. So, what about the spread, though? Uh, it didn't. It wasn't in the water supply, was it? No, but it, what it did was it jumped from being animal to human, which is what happened with SARS, you know, Ebola, supposedly HIV. These are things that can happen. You can have something that's usually just in an animal, and then it can jump to a human host because viruses are very smart, and they, they know how to replicate, and they can change themselves. So it's similar to cancer. It knows how to replicate. It knows how to change itself. And when it jumps to the human host, then it's like, oh, here's a, here's a whole new home for me. I can live here. And there's lots of these people going around. There's lots more humans you know, than these bats at a market. So they'll take advantage of that and they'll find ways to, to work with us. Let me ask you this. Is it with COVID-19 unusual or that we'd not seen it before in in the world, as far as scientists know at this point, health experts, uh, uh, that it's it's created. I think that's hard for lay people to really understand, for me to understand that all of a sudden we have a, a new uh, epidemic. We have a yeah. new virus. We have a new disease. Uh, when ha- Has that ever happened before? So you're asking me, did it drop from the sky? And no, it didn't just drop from the sky. What happened was we had SARS. And remember, COVID and SARS are like, they're like cousins. We had SARS, we've had MERS, we have Ebola. Ebola was, whoo, boy, that's all the that's all the fluids from the body. You know, that's very hard to recover from Ebola. But they're not that far apart from each other. So as the scientists were looking, especially at SARS around 2002, 2003, remember the ballet dancers and the ballet dancers with the mask picture, 
and they were seeing what this type of virus was like. And they said, there's going to be a breakout one that we haven't seen before that's going to cause a pandemic. And everybody's like, oh, you know, oh, don't tell me that. But this is gone. SARS is gone. Ebola is gone. Didn't really get to America. No big deal. Well, here's the big deal. So they predicted there was going to be something that nobody had been exposed to before. So there's no herd immunity. And here we are. So let's go back to uh, to 1833, okay. and uh, and the, uh, once again, the the name of your book, the pie seller, or the drunk, and the lady, uh, heroes of the 1833 cholera epidemic in Lexington, Kentucky, and um, uh, talk about uh, the 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 three uh, protagonists that you have, if if they were that in in your uh, in your book, and uh, what was happening prior to 1833. This occurred in the summer of 1833, but were there signs uh, before then that something was going on? Yeah, the breakout day, according to some people, was June 2nd of 1833, five days after it broke out in Maysville, Maysville, Kentucky. All right, so I said a travel trade tourism. It went across Europe, decimated St. Peter's and and Russia, got to Sunderland, England in the fall of 1831, and then came by 32 into New York City, where there were 5,000 deaths. New York City, just like today, was devastated, and so was New Orleans. Now, travel through the rivers got it up to Maysville. So you say to me, Terry, how did it get to Lexington when we're not on a river? We had built a macadamized road from Lexington to Maysville, in the 1820s, and we also had a railroad, and Benjamin Gratz was behind both of those with other people. So the theory was when it hit Maysville, people went, ah, jumped in the stagecoach and ran down to Lexington to Postaway's Tavern, which was later the Phoenix Hotel, which was right on the town branch. And you probably had hundreds of outhouses, which they call necessaries in Lexington at that time, with shallow privies, shallow wells, and underground caverns with this karst. So because of that, if we had a lot of rains, which we did, and the privies overflowed into the sinkholes, into these um, shallow shallow, uh, privies going down into the, the streams, into the town branch, people are pumping it up for their stew at night. So that's how it got to Lexington. And because of the karst, we had a bigger dose, if you want to say that way, coming into what we were drinking. Not you and I, but the people living here. And they would be dead in uh, 24 to 48 hours from the cholera. It moved because of the travel and the trade. The same thing with SARS. SARS started in Hong Kong, went to Germany, went to Toronto. Boom, boom, boom. Just like that. So it traveled from Maysville to Lexington. Yes. And uh, did people know at that time that it was in the water system? No, they didn't. They thought it was in the air. They thought it was this miasma. They knew it was coming because they'd read the newspapers from Philadelphia and this, and they knew that it was on the East Coast. So they were afraid it was coming. But at that time, any autopsies showed kind of an engorgement of the liver. So they thought it was something, a poison of the stomach. They weren't too far off on that. 
but they didn't have the right treatment for it. What had happened is that it eventually killed everybody that it was going to. And then the rest of them, it just went out of the season. Because I think it's, it's, in, the, uh, it's in your book and uh, the research that you uh, discovered and did on the medical community in Lexington at oh. the time. Talk a little bit about uh, the lack of, uh, of a medical community and where the doctors were and that sort of thing. I think that's pretty fascinating. And my heart goes out to them because some of them were very young in their 20s trying to figure this out. So the main source of physicians at that time was Transylvania Medical University, their college, were training them. And they practiced at Eastern State, the lunatic asylum. That's where they had patients that they could work on or work learn from. Let's put it that way. The treatment was a purgative, calomel, which is mercury. And they took, yes, I know you're shaking your heads. I'm going to be speaking to nurses about this later this month. They did this because they really believed they had to strip this, the stomach of this poison and get it out. You know? So if you, if you survived your treatment, then you were, you were okay afterwards. But three of the doctors succumbed to cholera. One was out of town, never returned. Another one was running out the door trying to get his coat on to answer a call and fell and broke a limb. So they were working day and night trying to take care of these people. And although uh, medicine, uh, as we know it today, has advanced so much, I mean, we've we've cured polio and and we have have so many medicines to take for so many things, yet uh, the uh, cholera, they struggled with it and they uh, are today are struggling with uh, COVID-19 and exactly yes. what to do for that in a vaccine. So the, the, the years that have passed between 2020 and 1833 are vast, yet at the same time, um, they're both struggling at the time for a cure. Yes. And there's Different points that I, I wanted to make on France, Lisbon, different places like this. And as I told you earlier, they formed a sanitary conference about 1851 in Paris, where they looked at the quarantines and the methods of different places in Europe and in America. And they said, OK, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start communicating with each other and say, hey, we got it here. We got it here so that the different ports and countries will know which places they should quarantine ships. Now, that didn't really stop cholera, but it was a way to communicate and to cooperate on a global scale. That went through the years, all the way down to 1948, the establishment of the World Health Organization with the United Nations. So you're going from 1851, 100 years later, this cooperation in the world finally getting a handle on it. And the Sachs brothers, S-A-C-K, from Johns Hopkins, actually met at the Chautauqua Institute. They did a lot of work on it in the 1960s. You also write um, in 1833 that uh, Lexington citizens uh, were were warned to prevent cholera. Uh, They were warned to avoid late hours, fatigue, intemperance in food and drink, and cold, wet feet. But but were they encouraged to stay hydrated? No. Oh, they weren't. And I, I thought I thought they were encouraged to to drink the water before they knew that it was in the water. 
Yeah, no, they weren't encouraged to drink okay. a lot before they knew it was over. They were encouraged to do these things. And in that same handbill that was passed out, I don't know if the, your listeners want to know this or not, there was detail about what your stools should look like and how much of this calomel you should take till you finally get to a certain color and all this. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're, they're torturing them. And they were also supposed to do hot mustard plasters and a couple other things. Well, I, I was just going to ask you to... Uh... Talk about uh, the three, uh, the three people, people. That you profile in your book. Yeah, right. Because one of the things that the World Health Organization found out was that it's it's paramount to have the scientists and the doctors and the political leaders on the same page in the world to try to do something when cholera breaks out or any pandemic. But the real action happens at the local level, because as you see with our own governor, people are either going to cooperate or they're not. And it's the it's the common people at the local level that are sometimes the heroes because they're the ones that go beyond it. So I took the pie seller who was Aunt Charlotte, a freed black woman, former slave. She'd only been freed for about six years, and she was selling these pies downtown. I call her the original food truck. She's probably selling pies to white businessmen, so she's not afraid to deal with white men. William King Solomon was actually older than her. He was 58 years old that summer. She was 42, according to her slave owner. I found her emancipation document. And he had been a successful rose contractor. He wasn't always a homeless vagrant, which is a good lesson for our homeless people now, you know, for us looking at them. But he had fallen to drink, lost his property, and was arrested on a vagrancy charge. They auctioned him off as an indentured servant, and she purchased him. So this really, as a New York native, this really grabbed my attention that in 1830s Kentucky, this black woman owned this white man. And we don't talk about that, but that was a big part. You know, that's a big thing in our history right there. She took him home with her. There's proof of that in the Kentucky newspapers. And because she was feeding him and housing him, he was able to bury all these hundreds of people that he did. So he has a monument in the cemetery that is one of their most popular graves. Mm-hmm. Is, um, it was highly contagious, uh, correct? Uh, it, uh, cholera spread, and it was, it was it highly contagious from person to person? No. Well, no. it was not. Okay, so I'm just thinking that, uh, that he was exposed to, to so many people that he took care of, that he buried. That he buried. It wasn't contagious person to person, but they didn't know that. So typical to what we have now, which I think is funny because I'm out running this morning and I passed somebody on my narrow sidewalk and I went out the street to run on the bike lane and she smiled at me because otherwise there was no room for her to get by me. They said that, you know, people went to the countryside if they had money could get away. And when they saw their neighbors or their friends on the street, they moved away from each other because they were afraid. Mm-hmm. that they were going to get it. Now he's handling bodies without coffins and people probably died in their bedclothes. And you and I know what the symptoms were, right? This, this, this enormous amounts of, of diarrhea and then discharges after the stool is gone. And it's just this rice water discharges. So their bedclothes are probably soaked with this and he's handling these bodies. Mm-hmm. He wasn't afraid of it. I think that there was no more shame that he could have gotten than this arrest. And he knew these people. So this is what he did. 
to bury them. But no, he didn't get the cholera, but neither did Aunt Charlotte. And uh, he lived to be uh, 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 an older man at the, at the time. Um, I think yes. 79 was, did he live? 79, to- and he died in the poorhouse. Mm-hmm. So now Maria Gratz, we don't want to skip her with the orphan asylum. Right. The lady, Maria Gist Gratz, her father was Nathaniel Gist, and her husband was Benjamin Gratz. Now, here's something that's really special about them. They had a mixed marriage. She was Episcopalian. He was a Philadelphia Jew. Hmm. He might have been the only Jew in Kentucky, or not in Kentucky, but in Lexington. When he died, he had a rabbi from, from Cincinnati do the ceremony. So he was an observant Jew. So she knew that... If there was going to be an orphanage out of here, she was going to have to get church ladies from different denominations. So she reached across the aisle, so to speak, Bill. She reached across the pew <laughs> and brought, and this was the first time this had been done, an altruistic movement or something like that in Lexington. And they raised like $5,000 and bought a house on Third Street, which is now the entrance to Hampton Court, and got an orphanage for these children hired a teacher, first free education, that whole deal right there. So here's three people that did more than they had to do. Her mother died from cholera in her home, and several of her servants did. She had had a a child, a four-day-old child die the year before. She she didn't have to do all this, but but kids, children came to her, hungry children came to her, and she responded to it. And the Lexington Orphan Society is still viable today? Oh, yes, they are. And uh, in philanthropic uh, ways, or could you tell us a little bit more about uh, about their work? Yes, and I could tell you some of the people that are in it. What happened was it came down from mother to daughter to niece to daughter-in-law all these years, and they give out money, grants, to to organizations that do things for children uh-huh. in our city. And you can find them in the literature, like the summer camps at the Carnegie Center for the children that have that have different themes. I know the Hearing Center. I can just think of different ones. They don't have a big fundraiser. They don't have a big profile. They don't ask for money. They have been very good stewards of their money. And I have to tell you this, that when I do my talks and I get people to act out some of the scenes, it's right in their minutes that early on they said, our treasure must be a spinster or a widow. So her husband can't get our money. <laughs> well, and more power to them. I, I would, yeah, back in the 1830s, you know, the women couldn't have their own money. So that's And that. um, in 1833, uh, it took how long for the, the city to be rid of uh, this awful epidemic? But then tell us what happened in 1849. In 1849, okay, it took enough of the summer. I'd say way past by August, there was definitely less cases. In 1849, they knew it was coming back again, that there was going to be another wave of it. There were not as many deaths, maybe much less deaths, but they did do some some regulations. They talked about how the privies had to be at least two to four feet deep, which made me wonder how shallow were they really before they had to be bricked in cleaned out regular. And they also said that the pigs could no longer roam the streets. But as somebody said to me, well, they complained that, uh, but they eat the garbage. And somebody said, couldn't they let them out twice a week? Like we used to do with pickup. Yeah. You know? yeah. 
So they did try that way, but they were still putting limestone on the streets and things like this that don't stop it. Was it as catastrophic in 1849 as it was in 1833? No, no, not in Lexington, but in other parts of Kentucky, the Marion County Fair back in the 1850s, there was quite a bit of devastation. By the time Grant was president, Ulysses Grant, he had his army officers checking different places and giving, sending information to him about where the outbreaks were, what's going on there. And I read all those pages. And there were some of them that were definitely tying it to water with speculation mm-hmm. at that time. So it was starting to get maybe it is in the water. So, Terry, as we, uh, as we wrap up, um, let me ask you to uh, give us your uh, thoughts, uh, uh, your analysis. Uh, I'm sure you have been very interested in COVID-19 and uh, the progression of it, it beginning in Wutan, China, um, and now as we are recording this podcast, what it's uh, doing to uh, much of the United States. Uh, you you mentioned before 1833 and what it was doing in the United States at that time to New York and now in New Orleans. Now New York and New Orleans. We're finding the same thing today uh, as we as we as we speak to each other. It, it's going on. So your your thoughts, your analysis about. Uh, what uh, went right and what went wrong and, and uh, about uh, not only back then, but, but today is there, you know, as I listen to you, it, it, there are separate stories separated by decades and generations, yet they're so similar in the outcome and, and the, the unknown that we're dealing with. Every time we get an outbreak, one of the first things that happened, and I'm talking about Ebola, SARS, cholera, you know, there's still cholera in the world, 100,000 people a year. Countries want to deny it. That's the first thing they want to do because they don't want the economic loss. Nobody wants to have a dirty city or a dirty country. So they say, we don't have this problem. Well, the disease rules, and eventually they have to say they do have the problem. If they listen to the doctors and they listen to the scientists, they have a better chance. We are all, we all share the measures and consequences of our communal global health. The studies that they're doing right now on the medicines to try to mitigate some of the consequences or mitigate some of the symptoms are really important, the clinical trials. All of these things that we're doing with social distancing, if we all get in this together, it'll make the difference. What I wrote Many years ago, on one of my slides, that how we respond to it, where you live and who's in charge, makes a big difference in whether you survive or not. Because you've got to have a strong government leadership that says, this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to follow the advice of, you know, the doctors and the scientists make a difference. I think we're on the right path with this. I think everybody is trying to do the best they can at the local level. You hear all these heroes coming forward to make masks and all this and and what the doctors and nurses and healthcare providers are doing. But for each person, more than any other time, Bill, I think we're realizing how much what happens in any part of the world affects us and our responsibility to each other. Terry Foodie, uh, a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers uh, Bureau, a, uh, a healthy living expert, a, a nurse, a, a, a teacher, and also the author of uh, The Pie Cellar, The Drunk and the Lady, Heroes of the 1833 Cholera Epidemic in Lexington, Kentucky. 
Uh, thanks so much for joining us on our, our first Sheltering in Place uh, Think Humanity <laughs> podcast. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Bill. I'm honored that you asked me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.